0: Hey there, and thanks for listening in. This is the Unorthodoxy Podcast, and in this episode, I want to talk about the two ways. I know this will seem to be about as general a topic as it can be, but it actually amounts to something very specific, and I hope something very profound. At least, I personally think it's profound, and I'm kind of hoping that you will buy into what I'm going to say, or at least find what I'm going to say a little bit interesting. I'm sure you've heard about how people talk about how it's possible to always classify people as as being only one of two types. So there are two types of people, those who think in binary and those who don't. Or there are two types of people, those who love getting up in the morning and those who hate people who love getting up in the morning. And um, this goes on. And of course, I know there are problems with saying something like this um, because life is just is much more complicated than binary. But even if this doesn't work or isn't the perfect picture of a complete reality, splitting things up can be a helpful way of understanding uh, just things in general. So the idea that I want to talk about is the two ways that are presented in, in this very old book called the Didache. It's, it's spelled Didache, but pronounced Didache. is a Greek word. And... Um, and if you want to find out more about this, Tom O'Loughlin has a, a really wonderful book on the Didache, um, which you should check out. It it just means teaching, and it's a really fascinating text because it deals with some of the more practical aspects of Christian living in the first century. In fact, uh, the Didache is amazing. It's an, a reminder that when most Christians today talk about trying to be in tune with the earliest forms of Christianity they probably have no idea what they're talking about. Uh the Didache is it reveals a kind of really ancient and strange world and but it, it's kind of beautiful. The Didache opens with the following words and I'm going to read a, a kind of paraphrase that I've I've just written. So there are two ways, one of life and one of death, and there's a big difference between these two ways. The way of life begins with loving God who gave you your existence and then loving your neighbor as you do yourself. And whatever you want people to stop doing to you, you must stop doing that to them. The Didache then unpacks a few additional aspects of the way of life. Uh, And then further on, it describes what it calls the way of death, which, again, I'm going to read from, from the Didache. It says, The way of death is wicked and hateful towards divinity. It's murderous, lustful, idolatrous, thieving, lying, deceitful, hypocritical, duplicitous, arrogant, Malicious, stubborn, greedy, foul-mouthed, prideful, jealous, vain, and boastful. Lots of not very nice things. And the way of death hates truth and only loves what does not love very well. That's basically the gist of it. And the Didache goes into a ton more detail about how destructive this way of death is. And this is all, I think, fairly straightforward. Life or death. Of course, everyone, if you just attention to life if life is about love and it's about this generosity then everyone would pick it right it's the right choice Uh, and yet it's also pretty clear that different people have different ideas about what it means to possess life and this is where I think it gets very interesting so I think of the rhetorical theorist Kenneth Burke he's got this distinction between motion and action or motion and activity. Western culture places a huge emphasis on the importance of autonomy. And Burke follows this trend when he notes that a person moving is not necessarily taking action. And what he means by this is that it's really possible to move without making a choice um, about what the right thing to do is. So motion is just motion. A zombie moves, but it's definitely not alive. It moves, but it does not act. Donald Trump moves, but it would definitely be mistaken to assume that he is alive, because acting entirely out of the unconscious realms of the psyche or various cultural biases is not a sign of life. It's a sign of death, motion and action. Anyone can make the mistake by just slumping into unawareness of moving without being deliberate about it, of moving without acting. Motion, as my little zombie metaphor suggests, is part of the way of death. Acting is part of the way of life. But this is not actually the main thing I think of when I think of the two ways. The main thing I think about relates to the issue of ontology, which is a word that refers to how we reason through what is, what reality is. And one of the insights that I I want to pay attention to is something that I'm going to explain probably too briefly and too roughly, but. I think it's quite brilliant and helpful. Um, The insight is this. There are two dominant ways of viewing or understanding reality, that is ontology. The one is that reality conforms to an ontology of peace. Reality is a kind of constant movement from and towards peace. And the other one is that reality conforms to an ontology of violence. So peace and violence. Peace relates, obviously, to the way of life that that the Didache talks about, and violence is connected to the way of death. And I know this may sound very simplistic at first, but it gets really interesting. So when I say ontology of peace, it's helpful to think of the philosopher Plato or theologians like Thomas Aquinas or Hans Urs von Balthasar. These historical figures, among many others, obviously, believe in what are referred to as transcendentals. These are things like unity, goodness, truth, and beauty. To understand this, it helps to refer to Plato's theory of forms. Actually, calling it Plato's theory singular of forms is maybe a bit of an exaggeration because there's no single theory of forms in Plato's dialogues. There are loads of conceptual subtleties and even self-criticisms in Plato's dialogues that mean that proof texting his ideas about the forms is always going to be a bad idea. So whatever idea I may present here will probably be a bit crude but I think at least it leans into the right direction. It helps uh, to borrow from Paul Tyson. He's got this wonderful book called Returning to Reality um, where he, he says the following. He says, the world as we immediately experience it seems composed of matter and form. That is, Not only are tangible things made out of something, matter, but they are all structured in specific ways, that's form, such that they are something in particular. A rock is not a bird, for instance, and a man is not a ray of light. The structure, that is the operational logic, the intelligible essence expressed in all existing things, is the form of that particular thing. So, for example, the idea of man, the eidos of man, is a form that all particular human beings have in common. Let me go through that kind of uh, just slowly. The the basic thing that's going on is, is that Paul Tyson is making a distinction. There are universals like the form of man, and then there are particulars, specific people like Helen Keller and Socrates. And so, yeah, so universals and particulars. Tyson then goes on to explain that This means that while particular people come into existence and then shuffle off this mortal coil, the idea of man or the human, the truly human, doesn't cease to be. It has a kind of permanence. It it lives longer than specific people. Things that enter and then exit existence aren't enduringly real. And yet the forms are the really real things that, for Plato at least, are eternal and universal. This may at first sound very dualistic, but Plato is not really a dualist, despite what many others have said. I think people tend to read him through a, a, the lens of modernity, and so they construct a dualism that really isn't there. From what we can tell, his point is not that the world that we live in is not real or not there, but that it seems, even as our very language, the way we speak, suggests reality seems to point beyond itself to something more real, more permanent and eternal. It's not that there is unreality and reality. It's just there are deeper levels of reality. So to use an analogy, it's a bit like seeing a play. Uh, and you know, you know full well that the actors are real and that the action on stage is real. At least it's a kind of reality. But you also know that everything that you see everything that is visible is happening because there's a ton of work that's gone on behind the scenes to create this play this performance and maybe this is a bad analogy because a play is totally made up but it's sort of helpful its reality is in its relationship with what is enduring enduringly real and true it's Its reality is owed to things that are not immediately visible. For Plato, the ultimate forms, these are things like beauty, truth, goodness, and unity, these are not things in the world like dungarees and hedgehogs and pebbles and toes. Such forms are atemporal. These forms of beauty, truth, and goodness, they're atemporal, they're aspatial, and they're sources of intelligible essence. This means that such transcendentals, um, as they're called, beauty, truth, goodness, and unity, are the energies of being that impart meaning. They give life sense. um, they, They make the tangible world meaningful. What's crucial here is that for Plato, these forms are not invented by our minds. They're not just made up or like... I made up the good, I made up the true or the beautiful. It's not about that stuff. The idea is that our minds have the capacity to perceive these realities, these really, really true, real realities. Um, And I think that's an incredible idea. We have this ability to perceive a deeper reality behind the reality that we live in. Thomas Aquinas suggested all things in our present world, in the world that we experience, get their reality by participating in these forms. Things are true by participating in the transcendental form of truth and things are beautiful because they participate in the transcendental form of beauty. Again I know that there are different ways of reading Plato's idea of forms uh, and, and one of those ways is dualistic. But that's not what Thomas Aquinas does. For him, truth, beauty, and goodness are interwoven into the fabric of the world. And this means that the world can be understood as a kind of language or communication that is always trying to communicate these transcendental forms. And also, this means that these forms are always present and they hold reality into place. They give it structure and, and meaning and they make it as real as it is, and as true as it is. This is very strong in the metaphysical tradition, and I do want to point out that this does not presume what some philosophers like Emmanuel Levinas have called totality. To say that the form of beauty is there does not mean that we own beauty or that we have the ability to fully comprehend it, for example. Metaphysics is always way too nuanced and mystical to be totalitarian in any way. Uh, So to claim allegiance to metaphysics like this doesn't mean that we can become arrogant in our assumptions about what the forms actually are. It just presumes something that most of us will probably find to be obvious, but it's worth saying anyway. It presumes that reality is there. It's not something that we construct. It's there to be found. Uh, but it's there as in a particular way. It's a communication of what is unified, true, good, and, and beautiful. So this is what an ontology of peace refers to. This is the first way, the way of life. And it's the idea that peace is the foundation, the way things start, and it's the way things are meant to be. This is what we're always working towards. Like when we lose it. What happens, though, is that we lose it. People have the, the tendency to just mess things up. In the Christian tradition, love is the highest good, but to exist as love, freedom is always required, and this means that freedom can be chosen against. It's, it's possible to choose against love and, and therefore to choose against the forms of truth, be- beauty, goodness, and unity. So this brings us to the second way, that second way of life, and this is the way of death. An ontology of violence fits with this. It pre- it presumes that everything is chaotic first. Um, it, it's messy and mad and troubled and fragmentary. So what needs to happen is that we need to find and enforce an order on things. In other words, the world, that's reality, etc., of violent and peace is something that is not already there but imposed in a world of platonic and aristotelian metaphysics philosophy begins with wonder because we find ourselves already in an order where unity beauty truth and goodness can be found discovered and marveled at but this is not what happens in a lot of thinking, especially in modernity and especially after Machiavelli's um, work. With an ontology of violence, philosophy begins with horror. And maybe in the in the case of Simon Critchley, not maybe, it's in the case of Simon Critchley, he said this philosophy begins with disappointment. To get a sense of why uh, this this kind of Idea comes across. It's maybe helpful to to look at the work of Martin Heidegger. For for Heidegger, reality is always this hidden thing. It's concealed. It's veiled. And what happens is that this veil is occasionally torn, and truth shows itself. And this is always much more of a shock than it is a surprise. Being, then, is not the ground or connector of reality, but it is an event. It, it shouts out, as if from nowhere, and it, it has to be heard. And this event is a violent rupture in consciousness. It's not a revelation of goodness, truth, and beauty. It's not a revelation of things that are always already present. To put it more, more poetically, maybe, it's an imposition, not a recognition. It's, it's imposed, not recognized. Another way of understanding the difference between an ontology of peace and an ontology of violence is to look at the way that language tends to function in both. Uh, language is something I want to come back to again in a later podcast because I think it's just so crucial to to look at it. It's It's the thing that helps us to piece together our experience of the world. But I do want to say this now, and I think it kind of helps, in an ontology of peace, And maybe this, again, is an oversimplification, but it'll have to do. In an ontology of peace, language functions iconically. In other words, language becomes like an icon in the Catholic Church. It it presupposes that the light of the divine, of divinity, will shine through it. Words are like stained glass windows, and and the light of reality, the the light of the forms, pours through them. And this... This is to say that kind of words are like sacraments. They allow for participation in a larger reality. Of course, not all words allow this and lies are possible, but lies belong to an ontology of violence. An ontology of violence presupposes a philosophical stance that is referred to as nominalism, which is one of the defining characteristics of the modern. Nominalism, which is hard to say, obviously has its own complexities. Um, But the gist of it is that words are separate from things, and things themselves are really specific. So in nominalism, there's there's no such thing as a chair, but there are those specific chairs out there in the world. Although it's their specificity that really matters, not the name chair. In fact, the chair, the name for the thing chair, is always added on. And in saying all of this, I don't think I've explained it very well. So let me try and get to the idea by referring again to the problem of universals. The problem of universals is about the way that specific things relate to universal categories. I've already talked about that, like the the specific thing, man, a person relating to the universal category of man. It's about how a specific person like Donald Trump would relate to the category of human for example and the answer is not very well Uh, but this problem of universals gets really tricky because it's difficult to know the form human directly or the form of beauty or truth directly saying that a statement is true is is pretty easy but explaining precisely what the transcendental truth really is that's that's terribly difficult and it's possibly even impossible. So what nominalists did is they came up with a really simple solution, which was to treat universals not as actual features of reality, but as words, that is, as functions of language. In other words, the forms are not actual things, not actual aspects of what is real, but things we just ascribe to reality. We name them, and that's that's all it is. It's just a name. There is no true beauty. There is only what we call beautiful, for instance. This means that the nominalist is a person who thinks that the universals are names, not things. So the nominalist believes that the only things that truly exist in concrete reality are individual objects. This is has huge implications, but the main one I want to look at is the fact that now... Truth, beauty, and goodness are not things you find or discover, but they are things you impose through linguistic categories. It's not that there is a capital G goodness there in the world, in the nominalist's view. Only things that we call good. The inner harmony of reality is ignored, basically, or just like shoved aside. Uh, This results in an ontology of violence. I'm not saying that nominalism isn't clever or that it's the only way that this ontology of violence comes about, but it definitely plays a very significant role. With nominalism, you can change reality by naming it differently. And this is something that the reformers start to make use of. So John Calvin, very well-schooled in nominalist thinking, Uh, well-schooled is probably ironic in this thing. In fact, his Soteriology is ironic because he has salvation for people insured by the fact that god's mind is changed through a sacrifice, so sin and terror and human error they these things carry on, but God's mind is put at ease, so we can be certain kind of sort of that will will be okay in the end. This is a massive subject, and I'm going to in fact i'm I want to come back to this, maybe I will do it in the next podcast. But the point for now is that naming things differently in the nominalist's view changes things. A rose by another name is experienced differently than its actual reality exudes. So where does this leave us? Uh, What does this all mean? For me, it basically leaves us with two choices. There are two ways, life or death, peace or violence, or maybe you'd say action or, or motion. The way of violence presumes that reality is not what we find, it's what we make or name or create. And while this is kind of true in a sense, a reality that is entirely made or created by us or imposed by sort of conceptual categories is going to be bound to a pathway paved in bloodshed. It, it's a day that needs to be seized, the it's the Protestant work ethic or it's the violence of having paradise paved and parking lots put up to misquote Joni Mitchell even peace in this way of seeing things is something that needs to be created claimed imposed but such a peace would be a violent peace a peace that doesn't surpass understanding but will always be just the product of a very limited understanding and then there's the way of peace this is something that presumes that goodness, beauty, truth and unity are really real, they are ultimately real, and they are there to be found or discovered. In this way life is an adventure or a treasure hunt, it's where we step into the world that we have not made in order to find awe and wonder in it, and maybe even God, divinity, the transcendent. The world is often characterized these days as a marketplace for ideas. And this is where pluralism means that we can choose whichever idea suits us. And this often means little more than that we can choose which reality we want to impose on the world. But I believe that beyond the violence of this view, the violence of shopping malls and branding and Deadpool and Justin Bieber's music, there's a, a deeper peace, a deeper reality, a deeper goodness, truth, beauty and unity that that is the foundation of everything this trust this hope that i have that in an ontology of peace may be perceived as naive i realize that but that's actually fine by me because to me this naivety is is more realistic than cynicism in fact the irony is that this naive perspective as i see it better supports a philosophy of realism which is a whole other topic, but I'll just say that for now. So reality is there, and it can be found not in the world, but in us too. We can be real, and we can become real, more real, through this pursuit of the transcendentals. And this this also means that I can receive my own life and the cosmos as a gift or as a grace, because it's... Not an accident that just happens at every moment to a world of accidents and mere opinions. Of course, I know there is randomness. There are words and there is violence. Accidents happen and opinions are a plenty. I am sharing a few right now. I get that. But these are not ultimate or permanent things. They're not transcendent. They're just like all words. They're like grass. They, They fade away. There are two ways. And I'm still trying to figure out the way that I'm going, but my hope is that it's going to be the way of life, of love, not hatred and decay, and that what I do will be life-giving in some way. I hope that you will find some life in this um, and and obviously find some life beyond it. This finding life, this this following the way of, of peace, this ontology of peace, will probably not just be about agreeing with ideas and philosophies. In fact, Everything that I've just said here has just been about naming. But this way of naming things, I hope, has not just been about imposing a view. I hope that it's been more about what it may mean to be open to new discoveries, new wonders, and more life. It's a sacrament, not an imposition. It's an arrow, not a a kind of label slapped onto things by force. So there are two ways life or death, and I'm interested in finding a way that is more about the former than about the latter. So that's all I have to say for now. Thank you so much again for listening in. I will be back with more at another point, uh, hopefully not too far from now. Cheers, everyone.